Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. I've titled today's sermon as Life in the Post-Flood World. Life in the Post-Flood World. As we've been going through Genesis, we've seen so far that God created mankind and God created this world so that mankind could live in this world and bring glory to him. And yet mankind rebelled against God and this whole earth was filled with corruption. And so God, as a result took away the blessing of living under his word and he brought his judgment. He brought his wrath against the sinfulness and rebellion of man. And what he did as a result is almost make this whole planet into a decreated state where the planet, you could say, was like day one of creation where it was formless and void where God wiped out all life that was on the ground, all human beings and all the animals that were on the ground. And then after that, uh, we see that God also preserved yet one family along with some animals in the ark. And we saw last week as to how then God delivered them and how even in God clearing up the, the planet, it's, it's a recreation almost, where God brings a wind and the waters part and the waters recede and there's appearance of dry land and, and plants and, and as we see animals go out on dry land and ultimately man coming on land, it, it's very reminiscent of what God did on the first uh, six days of creation. Really, it's a picture that God is starting afresh. God is starting anew. And, and really, as he's starting with one man, Noah and his family. And really, Noah now becomes the new representative of man. He is the new Adam. And as Noah and his family, as they step out of the ark, and as they come into this new world, this post-flood world, I'm sure they would have had so many questions. I mean, to begin with, it's an empty planet. Before, as they lived in this planet, it was a planet that was filled with life. And yet now as they come out, the only life form that is around them is just Noah and his family. There's no other human beings and the animals that were there with them in the ark. So I wonder if they might have been thinking, so how does God view human life? I mean, he's wiped out basically most of mankind so is, is human life very cheap for God? Does he have no regard for human life? How does he view human life? 
And then on top of that, as they've come into this new world, you know, I'm sure they must be thinking, okay, so what are we to do now in this new world? I mean, remember uh, Lamech, Noah's father, had prayed that God would bring about a rest from this sin-cursed world. And which is why Lamech named his son Noah, because the name Noah really means rest. And yes, in some sense, we, we know that God sent the flood and he's wiped out all the people that rejected God and were utterly corrupt even in their actions. That's, so the, the world in one sense has been cleansed from that. But Noah and his family, they're still sinful. And even as the next generations come up, they're all going to be sinful. So is all this going to be repeated again? Is sin going to become more rampant again? Or is God going to provide some kind of rest uh, in this new world? Is he in some way going to restrain some of this evil in this world? Or are things going to be exactly the same and the same judgment going to come about? You know, is God's plan for human life to thrive again? And, and if so, why? What is God's plan? What is God's purpose for us? And even as I'm sure Noah and his family had all these questions, I pray that as we look at this passage, Genesis 9 verses 1 through 7, it would help us understand this one fact, that God is committed to preserve human life. And there are three ways in which we will see this. In verses 1 and 7, we we see the propagation of life and how God is committed to the propagation of human life. In verses 2 to 4, we'll see how God also makes allowance for the perpetuation of human life. And then in verses 5 and 6, we'll see how God will protect human life. And all this points to three different ways in which God is committed to preserve the human life. And I pray that as we look at these three different headings, these three different ways God is committed to preserve life, that we will be reminded again of God's purpose for us in this world and also be reminded of how therefore then we are to view this world and how we are to view our own lives and how we are to then respond accordingly to what God reveals to us. So the first way in which we see that God is committed to the human life and and for human life to thrive is in the command that he gives for the propagation of life. And we see that in verses 1 and verses 7. Look with me at verse 1. It says there, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then again, look down at verse 7. It says there, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So this really is, is the, 
you can say it forms sort of a framework to this section. They serve as bookends where God's emphasis is wanting human life to thrive. Now this blessing, and really uh, it's a blessing in the form of a command, it sounds familiar to us because this was the same blessing and command given to Adam and Eve. If you remember in Genesis 1.28, God says this to Adam and Eve. It says, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So again, this is, this is connecting uh, this passage to the, the creation account. And it's connecting Noah as well with Adam as the new representative head, where Noah is now the new Adamic figure. And Noah is told the same thing as was told to Adam. And as God is graciously starting anew with Noah and his family, God's intention for mankind has not changed. God's intention for man is still the same as it was before when it was a sinless world. To be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. And remember, God's purpose in in mankind being fruitful and multiplying and so that they would fill the earth is precisely because mankind or man is made and created in the image of God. And so as mankind multiplies and fills the earth, then the earth is filled with God's image bearers, such that the whole earth then will be filled with God's glory, with God's image. This is God's purpose and plan that the whole earth will indeed be filled with the glory of God by those who reflect the glory of God, by those who image him. And this plan and purpose is repeated in other parts of the Old Testament. One example would be when we went through the book of Habakkuk. In Habakkuk 2 verse 14 it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is God's plan. This is where everything is headed. And how is God going to fill the whole earth with his glory? How is this going to happen? By filling the earth with his image bearers that reflect his glory. This has been God's plan and purpose from the start of creation and God will fulfill this one day. And it is this intention that is given now to Noah and his sons in the form of a blessing and a command. But here's what's so astounding about this. 
See, because now man is sinful. See, Noah and his family, they're, they're sinful people. Unlike, unlike when God first gave this blessing and command to Adam and Eve before the fall. I mean, they were innocent. They were sinless. And it, it is in that context he told Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth with his glory. I mean, think about this. As we've gone through Genesis, God created man to, to represent him and to multiply and fill the earth with his glory. But what did man do? Man rebelled against God, sinned against God, and filled the whole earth with his corruption and sin instead of God's goodness and glory. So what did God do? God wiped out all of humanity except for Noah and his family. But again, this family, Noah and his family, they're not sinless either. They're not innocent like Adam and Eve first were. See, God doesn't say to mankind now, oh, I'm done with mankind. No, God still stamps his own image on mankind and gives man the privilege of representing him and reflecting his image in this world and to fill the earth with image bearers of God. Now, in case someone is thinking, but, but doesn't God understand the implications of this? I mean, why would God want Noah and his family to bring in more sinful human beings into this world when in the first place he killed the rest of humanity for that very same reason, because of their sin? And I would say this. Yes, God fully understands. I mean, God is all-knowing. He knows everything about the past, the present, and future. He never needs to gather any new information. And even though man is now sinful, and his ability to image God and reflect his glory is severely marred, God is still determined to carry out his original plan for man. So that man would indeed be God's own representative on earth. And through man, God is going to fill, his, fill the earth with his glory. God is determined to do that. Now, we don't have all the details of how God's going to bring this about. Because, because now there is sin here. But what we do know is this, and what is mentioned very clearly in this verse is God's intention is still the same as before, despite sin being present. And it, it has come again in the form of a blessing and a command to be fruitful and to multiply. And, and really the fact that God will use sinful man for his purposes, uh, you, you know, it tells us two things about God's sovereign power and his sovereign grace. Because if you think about it, it is through this, the line of Noah, no matter how sinful he may 
even though he's not perfect, it is through the line of Noah that the promised seed of the woman, the promised offspring, Jesus Christ, would come, who would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse of sin and death. It is through this same man, God is going to still achieve his promises and his purposes. And it is also through sinful man that God will carry out his plan of filling the earth with image bearers who will one day reflect his glory perfectly on this earth. God will do this through sinful man. And it shows both his sovereign power to achieve this and his sovereign grace to use sinful man to achieve his purposes. And you know, even today, God give sinful man this privilege of carrying out his plan, of of representing him on this earth and filling the earth with his glory. This is a privilege, a purpose that is given to you and me and every human being on the planet. And it's still such a staggering thought, isn't it? That, that we, sinful man, sinful creatures, are still given the privilege of representing God, the king of the entire universe. Not even like a small prime minister of a certain country, but the king of the entire universe. We are given the privilege to represent him and to reflect his character and his glory to the rest of the world. And part of that intention, this plan of God, is achieved as families have children. Because how are you going to fill the earth if mankind is not reproducing? See, Adam and Eve, as husband and wife, God said to Adam and Eve that they would become one flesh. And it is in that one flesh union that they were to reproduce and multiply and fill the earth. Now I understand we live in a sin-cursed world. And as part of that curse, if you remember, God said to Eve that there would be difficulties in childbearing and child-rearing. We saw that as we went through Genesis 3. And I realize, therefore, that some of you could experience issues in falling pregnant. And there could be infertility issues and so on. And this is part of living in a sin-cursed world. But at the same time, just because we live in a sin-cursed world does not mean, therefore, a husband and wife should not try to have children. See, children are a blessing from the Lord. They're not not an inconvenience. They're not a nuisance. Every husband and wife should understand that children are a blessing from the Lord and therefore should strive to have children if they are able to, if God blesses them with children and they are to bring the children up in the ways of the Lord. It is part of God's purpose for the family and to achieve His ultimate purpose. Purpose and plan in this world. 
You know, this past week, I was reading through a few articles. And one common thing that, you know, in a lot of these articles was, was the fact that many in the world, including many secular scientists, think that the issue of pollution in this world and, and, and climate change and depletion of resources in this world is because of an increasing human population. And they say that as the human population keeps increasing, it will lead to more of a strain on the earth and its resources, making it less sustainable. And then in some ways, there's even a subtle push, therefore, to limit the number of children that couples should have. And yet this thinking, it it, it is just so foreign to the Bible. I mean, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God is the one who sustains the earth and he has created the earth in such a way, even in a sin-cursed world, even in a sin-cursed earth, he has created the earth in such a way that it is capable of providing for mankind even when it is full of human beings. It is God who has designed the earth this way. Because God intends to fill the earth with his image bearers. And in case you were wondering, so is the earth now filled in a way that God is talking about here? Is it, is it so filled and uh, overpopulated almost? I would say no. Think about India. India has a rather small landmass. And yet in that small landmass, it has about 18 to 20% of the entire world population over there on that small landmass. 18 to 20% of the entire world population right there on that small landmass in India. And then when you consider then how much landmass is left on the earth, there's a whole lot more. There's a whole lot more land to be filled by mankind. So no, the the earth is not overpopulated. It is certainly not even filled. And the reason why there's a disruption of things on this earth is not because there are too many human beings. No, it's actually because of man's sinfulness. That's what the problem is. See, man rebels against God and uses everything in this world for selfish reasons instead of honoring God with the things that he has been given. And therefore then God withholds the fruitfulness of the earth. So an increase in the human population will never drain out the resources of the earth. 
God has made the earth so that it can support mankind because his intention finally is to fill the earth with his image bearers. And so that's what we see here where God's intention even after the flood, even though it is still a sin-cursed world, his intention is still to bless mankind And God's intention is for mankind to propagate life and fill the earth with his image bearers. So that's the first way in which we can understand that God is committed to preserve human life. And he wants human life to thrive in this world. So it's a hopeful beginning for Noah and his family as they start their new life in this world, as God's intention is to bless, is not to curse, it's not to harm them. He wants to do good to them. He wants to help them thrive. He he wants them to propagate. But with the propagation of life, there also needs to be a sustaining of human life as well. And here we come to our second point, the perpetuation of human life in verses 2 through 4. Verse 2 reads, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Let me just stop there. So God wants human life to thrive, and, and for human beings to reproduce and fill the earth. But remember, this is a sin cursed world. So there are things that can affect the propagation of human life and how it can be sustained. Just think with me for a moment about the pre-fall world and how that was and how the post-fall world was different. See, in the pre-fall world, before there was sin and the curse, Man was called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and to also exercise dominion over all the earth, including all the animals. So man, as, as, as God's image bearer, he was to, to rule over the earth and all the animals that were there on the earth on God's behalf. And if you remember in Genesis 2, where all the animals that were created then came to Adam to be named. And Adam naming the animals was a way of showing his authority over the animals. And the fact that the animals willingly came to Adam shows that they were willingly submitting to his leadership, to his rule. They were recognizing that man was their ruler. They were recognizing this is God's representative ruler here. On earth. So in the pre fall world, there was a great harmony between man and animals. But after the fall, 
after sin came into the picture and the curse came in, everything, all the relationships that man had fractured. Man's relationship with the created world got fractured, including the animals, not just the plants and the ground. And the animals then became antagonistic because there was the curse and and death was brought in. The world was no longer good and so now the animals too had become antagonistic toward man. And you get some clues from Genesis 6. Look at Genesis 6.13 where God is saying this. He says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them, that is all flesh, with the earth. So God is saying, all flesh is corrupt. And all flesh is violent, that is filled the earth. And God says, this same all flesh, therefore, I'm going to destroy. And what is the all flesh you're referring to? Well, mankind for sure. But it also refers to the animals. In fact, Genesis 6.17, where then God says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven and then again genesis 6 19 where god says bring the animals in two by two this is what he says every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive he's what is he talking about there all flesh he's talking about the animals that these animals this is the all flesh that's coming into the ark that's going to be preserved All the other animals that's outside are going to be destroyed. So the implication, I believe, is that when it says that all flesh had become violent, that it is also referring to the animals. That it's not just human beings that had become violent in their behavior to one another. That the animals had also become violent. The animals were attacking each other and killing each other even. But they were also attacking and even assaulting and trying to kill mankind as well. All flesh was filled with violence, including the animals just before the flood. So now you can understand why all the animals too on the ground were killed by God. And which is why I think the the fact that various animals came into Noah's ark two by two points even more so to the sovereign work of God because one, animals don't do that. But the fact that they weren't attacking each other or attacking man, it just shows the sovereign power of God in doing that. And so now in the post-flood world, sin is still there. 
And what's interesting is God doesn't say be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion. No, that, that's actually omitted here in this passage as he talks to Noah. And this is because, precisely because there is now sin and evil and the curse still persists. Because all of creation, including the animals, are going to resist mankind's dominion. Because there's a fracture there now. So what does God say then? God says, there's going to be a restraining of evil. There's going to be a restraining of violence. God says, now the animals will have a fear of man from now on. And, and this is true even to this day. You go near birds, they fly away. You go near animals, they fly away. You go near fish, they, they sort of go off, generally speaking. And this is exactly why, even generally speaking, even the wild animals, they don't come near to where man lives. I mean, imagine if, if the crocodiles or, or lions had no fear of man, they would just simply walk into wherever man lived and would just destroy mankind. So there's a restraining of the violence of animals. And so in this sense, the animals become less of a threat to human life and human life can be sustained. It can continue on. But God's grace toward mankind goes even further because look at the last part of verse 2 and verse 3. It says, Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So in addition to the animals now fearing man, God says, you can also eat animals. Remember before the flood, in Genesis 1.29, God had said all the plants, they're all for you. They're, they're food for you. But really before the, before the fall, before the curse happened, before sin came into the picture, man was only given plants to eat. They were meant to be vegetarians. Why? Because there was no sin in the world. There was no death in the world. Death came into the world as a result of sin. So there couldn't be killing of animals. So that's why before the fall, the diet was strictly vegetarian. But now after the fall and after the flood, God says to Noah and his family, in addition to all the plants that I've given to you to eat, you can also eat meat for food. You can kill animals for food. So if you think before it was a huge vegetarian buffet, God has expanded the menu now. Oh, there's, there's a lot of meat now to eat. There's meat and steak and fish and everything else on that buffet now. And it's not just a little bit. God says, I, I give you everything for food. So it's a bountiful supply of food. 
This is God's bountiful provision, his, his goodness and his grace toward man so that man's life can perpetuate and it can be sustained. And I'm particularly thankful for God's goodness in providing us uh, meat this way uh, as food. But there's a restriction that God places in the eating of meat. Verse 4. It says, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now blood, it's associated with life. Why? Because, you know, when you think a beating heart or a, you know, a good strong pulse, which is essentially, again, you know, a beating heart is just the blood, uh, blood being pumped or a good strong pulse is, again, just blood flowing through the veins. And you have these things, you say, oh, that's that sign of life. So blood is equated with, is associated with life. Now when animals, when they eat other animals, what do they do? They just rip into the animal and eat it with its blood. But God is saying, no, 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 no. Man, yes, you can have animals as food, but you will not eat meat like the other animals. You will recognize that all life, including animal life, is from God. So there's meant to be a certain aspect of respect for all life that God has given. So even in the way that you eat meat, you don't eat it like wild animals. And given blood is associated with life, it also prepares the way for the sacrificial system that will come later where blood is used. And you can understand why. See, because if if the life of the animal is associated with the blood of the animal, it's the blood that is shed on the altar of sacrifice in the place of the sinner whose life should have been shed. And so in this way, the, the sins are being atoned by the, by the blood sacrifice, by the life of that animal that was killed. And this ultimately points to the blood of Jesus or the life of Jesus that was shed for sinful people to make them right with God. So the idea of not eating blood here, blood with the meat, it's saying that you need to recognize as you eat meat that you're not going to eat meat like the animals eat where they have where the animals have no, life, no value for life, including animal life. God is saying, even in eating meat, you will recognize that this was a life that was given by God and is now killed as food for you. And really to not have any regard for any life, even the life of an animal, is to have no regard for the one who gave that life, which is God himself. So when we recognize that even the animal life has value because it has come from God, this is what it does. It it's puts a check 
on being cruel to animals because we recognize that even that life is from God. It prevents the abuse of animals. It prevents reckless killing of animals. And let me just expand this uh, application a bit more. Yes, God gave man dominion over all the earth, you know, over the animals and the plants and the trees and all the other resources for the enjoyment of life so that man can sustain life on this earth. But that does not mean, therefore, that we have license then to exploit everything on earth and have this don't care kind of attitude. Almost this anti-environment kind of attitude. You know, I don't care if I pollute the whole place. I don't care if I'm cruel and abusive to animals. I don't care if I'm reckless with the resources that God has given to me on this earth. No, that would be wrong for us to have that kind of attitude. But at the same time, then we shouldn't go the other extreme either, sort of become just a total animal activist or a greeny environmentalist saying that, oh, you can't chop trees and, and, and whatnot and hold the whole environment and everything else in such high regard as though that is the end all and be all and of everything. No, the right perspective to have is this. As Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. This is, this is God's world. Everything that, that is contained in this world also belongs to God. And so we as humans, we're merely stewards of this earth and everything that is contained in this earth. God has given this to us to take care of. So we need to be good stewards of the resources that God has given to us in a way that glorifies God and in a way that is ultimately for the good of the people around us in the way that God intended. All in moderation, but not in an exploiting sort of way. So from this we can see that while God has also expanded our food palate to include animals and he has restrained the violence of animals so that human life can be sustained and it can be propagated, we should not be reckless though or abusive in our treatment of animals like other animals treat other animals. And there's even a sense that the fear of man in animals would serve as a protection for the animals. Because now, because animals fear man, they can, they can hide from man as they see man approaching. And in this way, man wouldn't be carelessly killing animals if they were just everywhere, just right in front of him. So God provides food for man for perpetuating human life, including animals. But we also see that God values animal life and we should also treat animal life accordingly. 
But even more than animal life, God values human life. And here we see that in verses 5 and 6, and we come to our last point, protection of human life. This is the third way in which we see that God is committed to preserve human life and for he's committed to helping man thrive in this world. Verse 5 and 6, it reads, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. For his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So if in the previous section God talked about shedding animal blood, that is taking the life of an animal, but he put certain caveats there, In this section, God is talking about shedding human blood or taking human life. And what he says is, this is forbidden. Why? Because human beings are stamped with the image of God. And therefore, a human being is more valuable than any animal. See, because of the stamp of the image of God in man, man can relate to God spiritually. Man can even reflect God because he's made in the image of God. And this is precisely what makes him separate from all the other creatures and all the other animals that God has made. And yet we live in a world that is so godless and does not acknowledge this fact that man is unique this way. And and to some extent you can see why. Why, you know, they think human life and animal life, they're, they're all almost the same. Or if not, animal life sometimes is even greater. See, because in the world's thinking... If they simply understand man as simply having evolved over millions of years, and therefore man is nothing other than a more evolved animal. So you can see why then, according to the world we live around, why man and animals are seen exactly the same, of same value. Because we're all animals. Man just happens to be a slightly greater animal and there are some lesser animals. But we're all animals. And this is the, the, the world's thinking. In fact, the way the world thinks is so contrary to what God has actually established and has said about man. We can see that... You know, so many instances, I'm sure you've read in the newspapers, uh, even over the last few years, where people can be more concerned about protecting the eggs of rare birds than they are about protecting babies in a mother's womb. See, even babies in their mother's womb bear the image of God and therefore should be protected and not 
killed. You know, I found one commentator particularly helpful. And just uh, in a fresh way, thinking about how we are to think about um, babies in the womb and how we are to protect them. And he talks about how the image of God is present. This is how he frames his argument. He says, the image of God is present in every human being including sinful man, no matter how marred it is. And yet, for us as Christians, yes, uh, as we are all in a process where this marred image of God is becoming refined and becoming clearer as Christians are made into the image of Christ. So as he builds this argument, this is what he says. I, I just want to quote him here. He says, after he talks about, yeah, the, you know, every human being are at different stages with regards to reflecting the image of God. He says this, quote, It seems entirely consistent, therefore, to believe that there is already a reflection of that image in the earliest beginnings of embryonic life. He's talking about human embryonic life. Of course, the human embryo cannot be anything like a full manifestation of the divine image. But neither can the fetus, the newborn, or most of us sinful adults either. Early embryos do not differ qualitatively from the rest of us. They are simply at an earlier stage of the development process. So in other words, he's saying, so even at at its earliest stages, a human fetus still bears, no matter how marred it may be, the image of God. It bears some imprint of the image of God. And that's why it needs to be protected. That's why it's valued. And so to murder a human being, whether a little one or a, or a big human being, an adult human being, is to murder an image of God. And that is not the same as killing an animal. There's a big difference between the two. And so God says three times as a result in verses 5 and 6 that he will require something, an accounting, a a, a compensation, a, a payment for shedding the blood of one who is made in the image of God. Really what God is saying is that he's going to bring about justice for this crime that is committed, for destroying an image of God. And just look at the second half of verse 5 and verse 6 again. It says, From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So this is what God is saying. God is going to bring his justice through man. And what's interesting is in the original, it doesn't actually say, from his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. It actually says, 
from his brother, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. It's actually brother, not just fellow man. And even here, there's a distinction made between animals and man. I mean, we have pets and we might even call them family because of our affection for them. But the reality is that no animal is a brother or a sister or a son or a daughter or a family of man. This reference to brother is alluding to what happened between Cain and Abel, where Cain murdered his brother. So every premeditated murder of a human being is like Cain murdering his brother. You say, why? Because we're all related. We're all children of Adam who are made in the image of God. And beyond that, we're all children of Noah created in the image of God. So we all belong to the same human family. We're all related. We are brothers and sisters because we all came from the same family. But what, what does this mean, though, that God will have his justice through man or through man's fellow brother? What, what does this mean? I mean, is this talking about personal vengeance? No, not at all. I mean, that's what was happening in the pre-flood world. Remember? Uh, Lamech. This is uh, ungodly Lamech from Cain's line in Genesis 4, 23 and 24. Remember? where he boasts about how he killed a young man for simply taunting him or simply bruising him. And then he boasts, yeah, yeah I, 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 killed. I, I killed a young man. And, and he boasts that if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge will be 77-fold. So that's like saying, you irritate me, I will kill you. You hurt me, I will destroy your entire family. That's man taking matters into his own hands. Man living according to what he thinks is right. And we all know how that ended up in Genesis 6, right? Where all flesh is now filled with violence and everyone trying to kill each other and hurt each other and abuse one another. And, and even other parts of scripture, it talks about where God says no individual is to exact vengeance. Why? Because, because of man's own sinfulness, that punishment that will be given will be far greater than the crime. Because even for something small, our punishment for that other person because of our sinfulness will be far greater out of proportion. So in the pre-flood world, there was nothing to restrain this kind of evil. There was no accountability. So now God is saying, I'm going to establish a legal authority structure. A legal authority structure whereby there will be punishment meted out and that punishment will fit the crime and justice will be upheld. And this way I will restrain evil. 
And you can see, so in one sense, it's even an answer to Lamech. This is the godly Lamech, Noah's father, his prayer where he said, Lord, would you give us rest through Noah from this sin-cursed world? In one sense, God restrains violence through the animals. Now, in another sense, God is going to restrain violence and evil by setting up a government structure of sorts. And really, this is the beginning of setting up of government authorities. The reason why God has set up government structures is because of the sinfulness of man. To, to protect mankind and to uphold justice. And so God is saying here, so for premeditated murder of a human being, the exact punishment will be given, which is capital punishment. But, but isn't that wrong, some might say? No. Because there's a di- big difference between someone who lives, someone because of their own selfish motives has murdered someone, Versus a God-sanctioned, lawful government killing someone to uphold justice. Because God has sanctioned this. And and I think we need to to have this right in our thinking. Because we don't hold the authority to determine what is right and wrong. God is the one who says what is right and what is wrong what is good and what is evil, what is just and what is not. Man does not have the authority to say what that is. And according to God, for a person who rebels against God and in a premeditated way destroys an image of God by by murdering someone, God says the only just punishment then is capital punishment. And again, there's many instances even in the New Testament where we see that affirmed. Now, I know our government has banned capital punishment. But I would say that's just not holding to the just standard that God has set up for governments. One commentator helpfully writes, quote, To argue against the death penalty on humane grounds is to argue against God's word. It exists precisely because of God's humane concerns. To ignore it is to despise life. This was and is God's word to a violent world. This was meant and is meant to protect human life. To ignore God's teaching is to descend even more into a society of violence. Close quote. So this is how God says or one way in which, particularly with regard to premeditated murder, the government is supposed to uphold justice. Now, just a few thoughts on the government. The government is an institution that God has set up. And as we read just before in the service uh, from Romans 13, God has set up the government to restrain evil in the world and to reward those who do good. This is what Romans 13, 2-4 tells us. 
Now, yes, we live in a fallen world. So that means our government will also not be perfect. It will also be fallen. Sometimes they will not uphold justice. Like in our case, they will support abortions. They don't do capital punishment. And, and the list can go on and on. And sometimes they can even force us to do things that we particularly don't like. You know, I, I grew up in the Middle East and, and I remember during a particular month of the year because of certain uh, religious inclinations of the country, no one in the country was allowed to eat any food outside during the day. And if anyone did, they would be heavily fined and even put in jail. And then even in a neighboring country of mine while I was in the Middle East, the women were not allowed to walk around in public without their faces being, un, um, without their faces being covered. And so if women were found to have their faces uncovered in public, they would be fine and, and there will be a whole bunch of other consequences with it. And the government would enforce that. Is it right for the government to do that? No. And so the government can certainly do things that we may not like and even do things that we may have concerns about. So how, how should our response be as Christians then to the government when the government starts acting this way? Well, we can make appeals and if there are channels by which we can make appeals, we should do that. But then beyond that, we don't revolt against the government. Instead, we submit to the government even when it is difficult to do so. And that's what we learned from 1 Peter 2.13 onwards. We did that just last year. And remember the context of 1 Peter, as Peter is writing about the government, it's around the time of Emperor Nero, who was particularly cruel to Christians, even torturing Christians. See, the only time that we disobey the government is when the government causes us to sin or disobey what God has said in his word. That is the only time we can disobey the government. All other times, even if it is difficult, we are called to submit to the government and maintain a Christian witness following the example of Jesus who himself submitted to an unjust government. And that is what 1 Peter 2, 13 onwards is all about. So our posture to the government, we should never have this anti-government kind of posture. See, because where there is anarchy, there would be absolute chaos and confusion and even more rampant sin. And we saw some of that in the states when certain states took away their police force and so on and so forth. The kind of chaos and, and rampant sin and violence that was going on. While we shouldn't have an anti-government posture, we should also not hold the government in and think that they are going to be perfect, that they are the ultimate solution for everything and they will make everything fine. 
No, we live in a fallen world, so the government will also be fallen. But here's what we need to recognize. We need to recognize that no matter how imperfect the government may be, it is God who has set up the government through these imperfect authorities to restrain evil in our society. And therefore, we must submit to our government as long as they do not cause us to sin or go against what God has said in the Bible. Let me just wrap up everything that I've said. In a post-flood, sin-cursed world, what we see here in this passage is that God is committed to preserve human life. He wants human life to thrive. He wants human life to flourish in a way that is good for mankind and in a way that brings him glory. And so God provides resources and food from plants and animals to sustain mankind. He also restrains evil in this sin-cursed world by both putting the fear of man in animals and by setting up governments to restrain evil, sinful Uh, the sin of mankind. And God's goal in all of this is for man to flourish and fill the earth and glorify God. But there's one problem with man. Because while there's restraining of evil, man still has a problem on the inside. Because every person is still sinful on the inside. And as long as the sin problem inside a man is not dealt with, man will dishonor God and live for himself and it will lead to his ruin. Then what's the solution? The solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just turn with me to Colossians 1. 5 and 6, really just the, the, the middle part of it. Paul is talking about the gospel. And this is what he says in verse 6. It says, The gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is, notice the, these two words, it is, talking about the gospel, it is bearing fruit and increasing. What's another way that you can say that? The gospel is bearing fruit. Or in other words, the gospel is being fruitful and the gospel is multiplying. The same two words. So what this is saying is that God's plan to fill the earth with his glory, which is right from the beginning of creation, the way it is going to be achieved when there's sin within mankind is as sinful human beings believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and as they are being transformed into the image of Christ and they reflect the glory of God this way, as they reflect Christ this way, 
That's how he's going to achieve his original plan and purpose of filling this whole earth with the glory of God. Even though there is sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the reality of every born again believer. And this is your reality too, if you are a Christian. That God's purposes are being achieved. That original purpose in creation of filling the earth with his glory by transforming you into the image of Christ. I wonder if there's anyone listening this morning who's not a Christian. Friend, let me just tell you, God has been very gracious to you in restraining evil in your life by providing food and shelter and for your life to flourish. God has been very gracious to you this way. But know this, that because you still don't live for the honor and glory of God, you are not living according to how God created you to be. You're living for yourself, and this is the path of ruin. No amount of trying to be a good citizen or an animal lover or an anti-abortionist will ever make you right with God, your creator. No, it is only through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into this world to die for sinners like you and me, It is only through Jesus Christ that anyone can be made right with the Creator God. And it is only through Jesus Christ that anyone can be transformed from the inside out and have the ability to live for God's purposes and glory, which is ultimately also for the good of the individual. Friend, if you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus or even who Jesus is, we would love to speak to you. You can email us at connect at gracebiblechurch.org.au and we will get back to you and we'd love to talk to you more about it. But for those of us who are believers, who have been made right with this wonderful creator God through Jesus Christ, as we understand God's grace and goodness shown to us in these three ways. You know, as we recognize this passage, you know, our, our, our view of human life should be held high up there, just like how God views human life. Our view of uh, Creation should be that this is God's creation. Our view of government should be this is God who has set up this institution, no matter how imperfect it is. It is God's grace in our life to restrain evil. And so as we get this view about about human life and about creation and about the government, then we as Christians should be people who then should propagate human life and champion human life and and see the real value of human life and how it is greater than every other life that there is. But at the same time, we would also then be good stewards of God's creation. 
that we would also be the best citizens of our country. And that we would also then go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all those who do not know Jesus and are not living according to the way that God had created them. And as we do this, we can be assured that we are glorifying God. And we can be assured that as we do this, God is in fact achieving his purposes in and through us. And for that, we can be thankful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy toward us. We thank you that despite our sinfulness, you continue to show your grace toward us. You want human life to thrive. Your plan and purpose is to fill this earth with your glory, for us to be good stewards of all that you've given us in this creation, for us to recognize that it is your grace that we have governments in place to restrain evil. And so, Father, as we understand these realities in a sin-cursed world, let us not forget the purpose for which you have still placed us here on this earth, which is to represent you and to represent your character. So help us, Father, through, through your word, as we've learned these things from your word, as we've been reminded these things from your word, to view our vo- world this way, to see the ways in which you have shown grace to us, and be about proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and knowing that you are still working in and through that, through us as we are faithful to you this way. We thank you for this great privilege of representing you and living for you. We thank you, Father, for this, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.